0: You survived Freedom Fest?
1: I did. Yeah.
0: Did you like it? It was your first time going, right? It's my first time going.
1: I really can't comment much about it because I only went to the talk I spoke at.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I find libertarian conservative professionals when they go to conferences, they don't go to the programs. Yeah. Um, they go to meet people, to talk, to hawk their white papers or get rid of their koozies for their organization. But like even for friends, like don't go to the panels. Because I mean, was, I, we, we get that stuff all day. Yeah, we yeah, hear yeah. it in the office all day. Oh, it's not I that have, it's not valuable.
2: I have the worst, best worst story about that. So there was this guy who, like, he knew I was interested. I was younger. He was 10 years older. I'm always bad about that. But um, I got him. <laughs> I'm always bad about that. But I got him into CPAC for free. So Because he's like, hey, you know, I'm just paying so much for my mom right now because she's going through stuff. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy to give you one of these for students to you because, like, you really want to go to this. I was dumb. But um, anyway, like I, I was speaking at a thing and like I told him it's going to be very short. I'm just introing. He didn't even come to that. After all, I, you know, bent over backwards to help this 31 year old who should have had savings to go to CPAC and like a life like, oh, I was so pissed that he couldn't even come to that. And um, and he still like kind of sniffs around to see if I'm still open. And I'm like, no, you're 40 now and you're terrible. <laughs> and like this was over 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, I just he he liked one of my photos the other day and I'm like, get out of my life
0: like no i was just glad i was just glad to go back to a conference and be around people who are not scared of everything i mean like Uh. no masks and just people just sharing the way that you feel about how the past year has been and like that felt like a huge relief to me i will say i was glad as far as freedom fest goes which is a conference that i think anybody should go to Um, it was better in Vegas than in the middle of South Dakota. I've never been to Rapid City before, um, but being in Vegas, at least like everything is on on top of each other, and you're you can be there for other things to drink, to go to a party or something like that. But you know, it is what it is. It's much more walkable, <laughs> much more walkable. But I and they have more lifts and Ubers available. Yeah. Yeah, but even for walkable in Vegas, you're walking over constant misery. I don't like that city. I don't like <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Me I've neither. Been, I've been three times. There's nothing exciting or happy about Vegas. It's a lot of people like putting on smiles after yeah. they've like wiped off the bleeding mascara because they're like I'm having a good time. I'm in Vegas. Right? Right?
2: Yeah. I, no. I got that vibe. I just drove into it. I'm like I'm not coming back here unless it's to go to Great Basin National Park. Like that's the only reason I would come back here. Like no.
0: But Jacob, you're not going to go back for Mount Rushmore? You didn't like it. <laughs> we went to we went to Mount Rushmore together oh and he just goodness. seemed incredibly unimpressed. <laughs> I was
1: incredibly impressed with the lead up to Mount Rushmore. So I think that's Iron <laughs> Mountain or the Iron Hills that we went through yeah, cool. that all had like very uh, strategically put caves and tunnels. Oh, so as you're driving cool. through, you can see Mount Rushmore and the yonder. So that was cool. Yeah. Getting on top of that and seeing Mount Rushmore from there. Cool. Mount Rushmore itself. Oh, my goodness. I was with Nolan, one of our good buddies. And we pull up and he has a uh, federal pass for national parks, right? Yeah. So we pull up. And he pulls it out. He's like, hey, I got this. Like, oh, that doesn't work. And they're like, oh, what? And he's like, oh, this isn't a national park. This is a national memorial. Yeah. And I just busted out <laughs> laughing. Yeah, I had a bad taste in my mouth from like the first second we got to the actual memorial. Then they had like a multi-billion dollar stage. It, like, I know they spent billions on that stage. Yeah. I know they did.
0: Jacob, you are now out in Ohio. Yes. You are no longer in the swamp. Why'd you leave? Are, are you? Can you even be happy in, in real America?
1: Uh, I think real America is the only place in America to be happy.
0: <laughs> I know. I know you're eager to get back. Uh, it's just like it's in a totally another world. I mean, just being like in Rapid City. When you get into a car, you have a conversation with somebody at the bar, nobody is asking you, what do you do? What do you work for? Yeah. And it feels so good. Feels very good. It feels so good. It's not
1: you- what do you do,
0: it's how do you do? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it's home for you, right? Yes, it is home for me. I, and that's the biggest reason I went back, because it's home. And I'm also starting a Ph.D. at Case Western University School of Medicine in epidemiology and biostatistics. So, very happy to finally start that chapter in my life where I can become a fake doctor and make my students call me doctor when I'm eventually a professor again. Why do
2: you want to do math?
1: Oh, it's my favorite thing ever. I, I, I feel I don't know. I've just had this fascination with pursuing truth ever since I was exposed well, to truth,
2: math. Well, truth,
1: but math? I think math is like the most concentrated form of truth. Statistics. Yeah, statistics. That's yeah. truth. Yeah. Well, it's like one plus one equals two. Then yada, 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 your iPhone works. Yeah. It's just a whole bunch of assumptions that just kind of magically come together to make things work.
2: So when I'm hiking, I actually, and this isn't a joke, this is just a sad truth. I do like fairly basic math in my head to distract from the pain. Like, that's why I just like, that's, that's me trying to get away from pain by creating more pain. And you're just like, math. Yeah. Oh, do you like math?
0: No, I don't do math. Yeah, that's, that's why. I, that's why I'm in politics and media, you know? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's why I'm here. Uh, uh, source that's- subject. Source subject. <laughs> 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 no, like, so you're, you're studying and your, uh, getting your PhD. You've been studying for the past several years and, and doing a lot of research and scholarship here in D.C. on the opioid crisis. Yes, yes. Um, ground zero in Ohio. It is ground zero, yeah, yes. Ground zero in Ohio. Is your research connected to what has gone on uh, with opioids and the amount of deaths that we've had in this country? Like, Are you going to be connecting those dots or are you working on something particularly different?
1: No, I um, am trying to unanimously answer the question,
0: to be completely
1: honest. Uh, When I first got to D.C., well, right before I got to D.C., I ran to a good friend, someone who's now a good friend, Jeffrey Myron. He's um, the director of economic studies at Cato, and he's also the director of undergraduate and graduate studies at Harvard University's econ department. And he saw my research on suicide, and I'm not going to go too much into that, but he saw that it was very similar to his research in opioids. And the first task he had me do was collect deaths from the CDC and then opioid distribution from the DEA and compare them. And I saw a relationship I never expected. When prescribing went down, deaths went up. And just my entire research is, why is this happening? What policies motivated this? Is this just spurious? Is this not causal? Or is there actually a strong
0: relationship between prescribing and deaths? You would think, I mean, obviously the the intuitive thing would be that Uh, Big pharma companies are pushing tons of pills on their patients over prescribing people and they are inundated with pills and therefore they're abusing them. I think I've seen in at least three movies now characters in which they go into their their bathrooms and there's just drug vials everywhere. They've got all these pills because their medical companies are just forcing them onto them and then they're becoming addicts. Um, But in reality, like, you know, actual the real world, my grandma was talking to me in South Carolina Um, about how she has a neighbor who is on pain pills. Um, She had a surgery like two years ago or something um, that is still leaving her in a lot of pain. And she has been trying to warn her neighbors uh, that her daughter, um, who's the one who had the surgery, is breaking into people's houses to get their pain pills because she's not able to get enough. And that was the first time that I had ever heard the idea that like people are addicted to opioids they are are on these pills but they're actually not able to get enough for the pain and for that need that is developing and then they're you know going to get it elsewhere going getting it from the street or they are breaking into old ladies houses to get their pills that seems to track with like what you're talking about
1: Possibly. I mean, if it comes to the point to where you're breaking into people's homes to get the
0: pills. In a small community, I mean, like, that's that's one of those instances where you don't call the cops. You talk to the neighbor's mom and be like, my daughter is doing this. You know, make sure that if you see her, stop her. Um, And, like, that's, again, like, that's a lot of how communities work is just, like, people working amongst each other to try to solve the problems and not bring in the police crime to break into somebody's house and steal pills. But, like, it's a thing that goes on, Um, you know. I I just am surprised to hear you say that people aren't able to get the pills that they need and get the opioids because the the prescribing rates are going down.
1: Yeah. I mean, the standard narrative is that big pharma in the late 90s, specifically Purdue Pharma, started spending millions of dollars advertising their opioids. And then there was this opioid naive or even drug using naive community that has now been exposed to opioids through the marketing and through doctors pushing opioids after the marketing took place. And then from there, you basically caused a large uh, percentage of the population to have addiction to opioids. And the way that the CDC and the FDA and other large bureaucratic interests within our government narrate it is that these people became addicted then And now they're still addicted. So when they reduced prescribing, because of the addiction originally started by Purdue Pharma, they're now substituting to the black market. But all in all, the the narrative is that these companies started the addiction in the first place. And because of that, the attorneys general who are now going after pharma companies are ultimately blaming them. And what I've seen in my research actually contradicts that. If you look at addiction rates, even starting in the early 2000s, they don't really diverge much, especially for pain relievers. I think addiction rates to pain relievers or even just non-medical pain reliever use, not even necessarily addiction, it remains almost stable from 2002 when the data were standardized to now. And my ultimate question is, how can we blame companies for causing addiction if the percentage of the population that's addicted to opioids really didn't change much, we've had about a fourfold increase in drug overdose deaths. Like they quadrupled. We did not have a quadrupling
0: in addiction. It looks so, like. So the, the addiction rate is is stable. It's pretty the stable. overdose, hospitalization, and death rate. Yes. That's gone up. So are we talking fentanyl here? Are we talking about like, what is in the drugs that people are getting? Yes. Most most certainly.
1: So between 2000 and 2012, we saw a gradual increase in pain reliever deaths, prescription opioids. And from there, in 2012, the CDC really started cracking down hard, and the DEA and other local law enforcement um, interests started cracking down hard through prescription drug monitoring programs. And now we've actually seen a 60% reduction in prescribing since 2012. But once the reduction started, we saw massive increases in heroin, massive substitution from heroin once the prescribing was reduced starting in 2012. Then the DEA started successfully um, interdicting heroin at the border, actually seizing heroin that traffickers were bringing in. But after they succeeded with this, we saw a move to fentanyl. And now as they're starting to collect more and more fentanyl, we're seeing a substitution to carfentanil. And these are all just a progression to more and more Potent substances that are much easier to overdose on because the people mixing them with more volatile substances, they're, they're not trained to do this. They're not trained. You, drug, drug traffickers really aren't trained to be mixing what doctors should be mixing. And that's really what's um, leading to more overdoses. It's not so much what percentage of the population is addicted to drugs, it's the quality of the drugs that drug users are using at any one time.
2: So is that the factor that's changing along with, um, you know, the, the, the higher number of overdoses and deaths and stuff? Are are those the two factors that it's, you know, the the increased deaths and also that people keep moving from one drug to another? And if so, is there an end to that cycle at any point? Like, can you get rid of enough drugs that it'll it'll end, like that this won't be a problem anymore? Or will they keep finding something else?
1: It's just impossible to stop the drugs from coming into the country. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely impossible. If you buy a $500 speaker system on Amazon and you take a little baggie of fentanyl about this big and put it behind the speaker, you you can't find that. You can't find that in an x-ray. You can make it look like anything in the machine and assume you could find it. They could send in like a hundred of these packages and if they catch 99 of them, it's still profitable. Sure. There's just absolutely nothing that we can do from the supply side to stop drugs from coming into this country. The only thing we can really do is convince people on their own to stop doing drugs.
2: How do you do that?
1: I don't know of a way. There's never really been a time in modern history, or even history at all, that drugs were just not being used. I mean, drugs have only been illegal in this country for barely 100 years. Up until then, there was complete access to heroin, heroin. You could actually go to the local um, pharmacist and just buy co- cocaine and heroin over the counter before yeah. the... Um
0: this is the future. The libertarians want <laughs> just a, a free-for-all, the cocaine and the Coca-Cola. Or, <laughs> well, it's actually you
1: know. the Constitution, right? I mean, it's like that's actually the access that the Constitution first gave us. I would say it's actually conservative to have free access to
0: how drugs. Is that, how is that the case? I'm not familiar with uh, with drug law and the Constitution.
1: Well, there just weren't any laws against it. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's all I'm saying. Like, if you want to be a heritage
0: constitutional
1: scholar, look back to the early days. There were no no laws against drugs. I was going to say,
2: reject modernity, return to tradition. (laughs) You know, it's it's a new spin on it. But um, have you studied the history? Like, what happened when... You know that when um, when the government started cracking down on drugs, like is there are there patterns there that mm-hmm. like every time the same thing happens? Uh, the
0: patterns. I yeah. mean, like every time we have a, a new a new demon to conquer, a new dragon to slay. Somehow it just gets bigger. Like a hydra, it just keeps sprouting heads. And then you do television, and when I see you on TV, you always get asked the same question: uh, What can the government do uh, to solve this problem? And like you realize, like the government created it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really convenient that the government causes the problems that it calls itself to solve. Yeah. Incredibly convenient. And really, the history of drug prohibition is the more successful we are at interdicting drugs, at intercepting drugs, and the more drugs we pull off the street, the more people die. And we see this with all substances. I mean, think about when alcohol was first made illegal. All of the alcohol poisonings that happened when people started switching from beer and wine, which was predominantly drank at that time— to liquor yeah. and all the poisonings that were associated with liquor and all the poisonings that were associated with liquor that was literally made in people's bathtubs. The relationship yeah. has persisted through the 1970s.
0: And then they make money off of it and the government like helps create these problems and yes. then they find ways to legalize things or to then make money after the fact. Like Purdue Pharma, for example. Mm-hmm. Purdue is the great big bad guy of, uh, of the opioid crisis as far as the mainstream media is concerned and yes. what they talk about. Um and nobody is interested in hearing the other side of the story, which you've been out there talking about. And like the part about making money about it. So like their legal settlement is starting to come together. And I was reading through it. And so the Purdue plan that is gonna be like part of their reorganization as, a, as an entity, it's gonna require the Sackler family, I guess, at the top, to give up ownership of the company in this big deal that's gonna be about $10 billion worth mm-hmm. over time. And part of the deal that Purdue's gonna do for their settlement reorganization includes um, the value of overdose reversal drugs in the company that they're going to produce, and then money from the deal is going to go to government entities, is what was in the New York Times. Money from the deal with Purdue goes to the government, which has agreed to use it to address the opioid crisis, along with the individual families uh, and the the victims of of the crisis itself. It's an incredible, weird shakedown to me. They're gonna have them settle and reorganize and all these AGs. on the the different states who have the suit against Purdue, are agreeing to pull their suits and allow them to reorganize if they give tons of money to the government to solve the problem.
2: Yeah, that doesn't sound quite right. I mean, antitrust enforcement over the past years has been very strange, and even just regular enforcement against companies has been very weird from AGs. And this is another weird one. I mean, I'm I'm not saying the government's not even genuinely trying to stop the opioid crisis or that. The the goals aren't earnest, but that does sound weird. Like, if that happens, what do you think the outcome is going to be? You know, money to the government from, and and this company broken up, what happens next?
1: I'd say it'd be exactly like what happened with the big tobacco master settlement. Less than 1% of the money is going to go to preventing tobacco use. Well, in this case, opioid use. And everything else is going to go into the government coffers. That's it. It's that simple. That's what they do every single time. Yeah, and what's really pernicious about this is that it in terms of a death crisis, we never really had a death crisis until the government intervened. There's these specific programs called prescription drug monitoring programs. And they were actually started in, I think, 2003 under the Bush administration. It was basically a competitive grant system where states could apply for a grant. Mm-hmm. The federal government would give them money to create databases to surveil their doctors and patients on opioid prescribing and other Schedule II narcotics. And The only thing that these states needed to do was just allow the Drug Enforcement Administration to have complete access to these um, records without any sort of Fourth Amendment protection. Yeah. So if you look at what Oregon and I think Utah did, they both sued the DEA for accessing the prescription drug monitoring programs. But both times, federal courts said, quote, patients and doctors have no expectation of privacy in such a highly regulated market as pharmaceuticals.
2: Yeah, that doesn't sound right. Uh, usually, when I'm alone with my doctor, I'm kind of glad that it's like me and my doctor, maybe a nurse, maybe like other medical professionals. Usually, it's a tight group, though. It's just a couple of us, you know. That's-
1: no, the DEA is there. If you're oh, getting a Schedule there. II drug, the DEA knows. They can okay. just look you up on a database. Because there's,
0: I was going to say, there's been a lot of movement in drug pricing just in the past couple yeah. of weeks. Uh, the Trump administration, right on his way out. Uh, tried to uh, democratize, expand the amount of, of places that we could get drugs. I think opening up the Canada option, right, so we could get more price competition and price transparency. Um, we were out at dinner the other week and you were actually down talking the idea of of drug uh, pricing transparency or like actually like showing up the prices. Could you explain why that is? Because I feel like that just went right over my head why the idea of like drug pricing transparency can actually be counterintuitive to good results for for patients.
1: Well, I'm against a law mandating transparency. I want prices to be listed, but because consumers who are purchasing drugs are using their own money through a deductible. The moment that consumers, and the research supports this, the moment that healthcare consumers actually have skin in the game, they
0: actually start asking questions about how much their procedures and their drugs cost. I think when people hear that, they... they Feel I have skin in the game. I have tons of medical debt. I have bills that I cannot pay. I've just got a surgery that I, uh, or surgery a year ago that I'm still paying for. Like I think a lot of Americans feel like they are getting fleeced by healthcare constantly, and I'll tell you they have skin in the game. So are you talking about reimbursements? Like just the fact that so much of the cost is taken off of them or off of their place, they don't understand like what they're actually paying for or, or or signing over when they do a procedure or get a drug.
1: Um. There It's complicated because oftentimes there is a miscommunication between insurance companies and the patients, and the patients think that something's completely covered, and they don't even ask for the price because of that. And then after the surgery happens, ta-da, you have this giant bill in front of you, and then they have to address the bill. Oftentimes what will happen is that the insurance company will take it all. They will pay all of it, but they'll negotiate with the provider of the service and basically cut it by like 80 or 90%. So you have this very weird system where you're getting these incredibly high-priced bills and then weird negotiations going on in the background. But we have to ask ourselves, why do these high-priced bills exist in the first place? And the reason this is, is because Medicare and Medicaid, their services, uh, most specifically prescription reimbursements, are actually based on the average price for Medicare and the lowest price for Medicaid. So, what these companies are doing is they're charging an incredibly high list price for their drugs. And then through coupons and other sorts of quote philanthropy, they're actually reducing the price for the private consumers. But if they could somehow, some way, convince the government that the list price for a drug is $500, every single Medicare reimbursement equals that. And people ask, oh, why don't they give um, poor individuals, individuals with less money, lower-priced drugs? Well, they probably would if Medicaid didn't match the lowest price of a drug. So that actually prevents them from cutting the prices ever, because that's what the Medicaid reimbursement automatically equals. So it's really just a pernicious um, incentive that's put forward by two of the largest medical providers in the country, which are Medicare and Medicaid. And really the only way to solve this problem is by separating their reimbursement schemes from our private market. The private market isn't setting the reimbursement schemes. The reimbursement schemes are setting the private market prices.
0: So, it's a, so the government is the, is the problem causing the reimbursement model as it is. How do you unravel that? Like, where does that actually happen? Is that a Congress thing? It is a Congress
1: thing. Okay. Now, Trump had some ideas because more and more Congress has been not wanting to legislate and they've been giving HHS more and more authority. I've heard Congress doesn't do much. They, they don't like to do much. And usually I would like them to do less. But if they caused a problem, <laughs> yeah. I want them to fix their problem.
2: Oh, gosh. I've had that issue with agencies, too. I remember there's one where I'm like, Guys, it's just a one guidance document. Like usually I don't want you guys to do stuff, but you cause this problem through a guidance document, just put out another one saying, Hey, data, then this is wrong and they wouldn't. And I'm like, guys, just just even the fourth branch. I'm like, you can't go to a, a fifth branch. There's no I don't think there's a fifth branch of government that you can like then go to. It's always really
0: frustrating. It's Facebook. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but it's frustrating. I, I know the kind of stuff you're talking about because I have um, I have many diseases, but among them, smaller one, rosacea, and I have this one. Only one skin cream works for me, and it it works magic. But um, it was like five hundred dollars, and I'm like, okay, I can make Yeesh. this little tube last, like okay. And then I went back to you know refill, and I'm like, okay, no, it's my like annual five hundred dollars for this. And then they're like, uh, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, five hundred. Like I know. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what it is now. Uh, somehow it had gone up to a thousand and I'm like okay that's I'm not paying a thousand dollars so my face won't like be a little painful and red and stuff so I found sort of an alternative thing I found I have my ways but um, I shouldn't have to be like scavenging the internet to like what's an alternative for azelaic acid at prescription strength um, but now that makes a little more sense. Why that little tube? And and even when I called my insurance company, I'm like, guys, you know, like, this isn't vanity. Like, I need this. It, it hurts if I don't, like, do something for it. And they're like, oh, well, t- talk to CVS. And CVS is like, yeah, that's your insurance company. And I'm like, this isn't worth it cost benefit time. I wish I could just, like, go to a little work, make enough money to pay for this so I don't have to yell at both places and figure out where this all starts. Does that count and,
0: as a pre-existing condition sort of deal? I
2: don't even know what's going on. Most of my drugs are pretty. You know, I, I don't pay very much for them. But that one, I pay more for that than I do for like any other drug I take. And I take many drugs, n- not legal drugs <laughs> from my doctors, but I do take many of them. And I'd never had anything that high price before. But I'm kind of wondering if that was Medicaid being like, hey, lowest price.
1: <laughs> well, I think your example is an incredible illustration and inevitably they increased the price to $1,000. Yeah. So instead of getting $500 from you, they got zero. Yeah. Well, what's been happening <laughs> with Medicaid? We've had Medicaid expansion. Yeah. There's more people on Medicaid. They're not actually maximizing prices in the private market. This is right. one thing that everyone needs to understand. They're yeah. actually making less money in the private market by charging prices that are too high because people do substitute away from them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only thing is like, if a drug costs $15 in the private market, but we increase the price to $1,000 and only one person buys it, yeah. what's the average price? Mm. $1,000. Every Medicare reimbursement equals that. Every Medicaid reimbursement equals that. They're just weaponizing the private market and they really don't care about the money they lose in the private market if we keep expanding the number of people who are covered by socialized medicine, whether it's medi- Medicare or Medicaid. I, just,
0: I yeah. feel like there is obviously so much common ground between like libertarians and, and free marketeers, and then like People who, who fall in line with Bernie on this kind of stuff, Bernie yes. Sanders on this stuff, like, they see the same problem, but the, the boogeyman part of it, who is causing this, is the part where yeah. there's just a total disconnect. Like, there's a feeling of injustice, there's a sense that, yes, the prices are going up, um, but I've never heard someone say that, like, just because the price of the, of the skin cream goes up to $1,000, uh, that they're not actually making more money on it, they're in fact making less less customers buying the cream and just only in the not. private
1: market Yeah, over, they're, so they're profit maximizing over public and private right but if there's more people in the public market yeah. they don't care if a few less people in the private market are buying the drug you get a thousand people buying a drug at a thousand dollars, or two thousand at fifteen dollars. You know what I mean? Just the price difference is so huge that they might as well just jack up the price, get one person to buy it in the private market, and then just gouge the taxpayers.
0: Well, we need alternatives. Uh, I like to think in terms of we've been talking a lot about pain, um, chronic pain, and and you know things that people are dealing with. Marijuana is one of the one of the solutions. It's something that can actually help people. CBD, THC, all of it. Uh, we are headed towards legalization. Uh, I think that like the the train is moving. I mean, that's the station. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a there is a bill that's actually moving through Congress called, and you can probably beat me to it, uh, the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. Back okay. by Wyden. It Used to be
1: the More Act, but the
0: More Act. It used to be, but that must be what it's called now. This is the latest version. Yes. Uh, do you? optimistic about it do you have any beef with what is typically going into these federal legalization bills Um, because i know it's like taxation right like they're gonna slap taxes on it excise stuff um, and they're gonna make money off it but isn't that just something that we're just gonna have to taxes are inevitable yeah
1: they are i mean with marijuana in particular we have to be very careful because there already is an established black market so if you look at the states that have the highest tax rate like california
0: well, the majority of marijuana bought in California is black not, market. Is black market? Yeah, they have all these options, and between zoning, which keeps like marijuana weed shops out of towns that otherwise might be able to host it, uh, between zoning laws that are incredibly rigorous, and then what you're talking about here with the prices, people still just go get it from a dealer on a corner. Of course, that's and still the way. It why works. wouldn't you if it's like a third of the price? Yeah, <laughs> right. Why wouldn't?
1: you? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, if someone had azelaic acid on the corner and, like, I knew it worked, I would go get that skin cream. Like, I'm like, hey, this
0: is a thousand Just open up the trench coat. What kind of acid do you yeah. want? Not that kind of
1: acid. Yeah. It's a skin cream. Or yeah. if you could, you know, just buy it online from a foreign pharmacy. That's
2: essentially. What like I'm Bernie <laughs>
1: Sanders wants to allow. It's interesting that Bernie Sanders becomes more free market about the access to uh, pharmaceuticals overseas than our like, Republicans because it's actually illegal. Pharma has ridden, basically lobbied to make the importation of these
0: drugs, and it was this in Biden's executive order, right on drug pricing. Mm -hmm. This was something that was in it in the original like draft documents. It was being there was like a whisper campaign going on that like this was what was in the text of the document. And then when his executive order on drug pricing came out two three weeks ago, it was gone. Yep. And I mean, you have to imagine the lobbyists. Oh, the
2: things they lobby for. You probably know this better than I do. But like the thing where you can like not really change a drug a little, but change it a little, and you can extend the patents and stuff. Yep. And I'm like, that's that's crap. We shouldn't allow that. That's
1: like, complete like... garbage. I mean, that actually <laughs> happened with Purdue Pharma and the FDA. Yeah. So people, a lot of people don't know about this, but I think it was back in 2009, the FDA actually came after Purdue and said they, quote, mislabeled their drugs. We can put aside whether they really yeah. did. But um, in an agreement, basically the FDA said, okay, we're going to extend the patent protection of OxyContin If you make it abuse deterrent, if you make it so if you crush Uh. it up and put it into liquid, it like foams and it's harder to inject. So they actually like made a deal with Purdue Pharma to extend their monopoly while punishing them if this makes any sort of sense. Yeah,
2: yeah, and that means other people can't really experiment with making a drug like that better in some other way. Yes. You know, and that could have been- Or
0: less addictive in some sort of way. We've just, we've got family in Pennsylvania, South Carolina, family in Kentucky, all dealing with this. Whether it is the neighbors who are having a problem and causing them a problem as a result, or getting involved in market activities that they Mm -hmm. shouldn't regarding these opioids. And then you have medical marijuana. Like after that, you know, the marijuana issue- They ask you, like, would you like to sign up for medical marijuana for your anxiety, your pain? And then you lose your other rights as a result. Like, you sign up for for medical marijuana, you are signing yes to I would like less pain in my life, but I would also like to lose my gun rights. (laughs) It's like, it's just, it's no win situations everywhere you turn. It is no wonder that people are so angry.
2: Yeah, I, I'll add one thing too that's just kind of interesting. So again, weird body, but um, opioids don't work well for me. Uh, with fibromyalgia, I'm one of my many diseases, you know, people don't um, absorb opioids, right? Like I don't have the right receptors. So you would think, oh, maybe marijuana. But for some reason, it doesn't do very much for me. But what does is CBD. When I have body pain, CBD cream is just incredible for it. Taking it orally doesn't do anything, but CBD cream. And then the TSA won't tell you if you can take it on planes or not. They're like, you just have to find out. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go for it. Like I don't think they're gonna like go after you. You can me, drop
0: but... it in an amnesty box. Yeah,
2: my CBD cream for <laughs> I love, fibromyalgia. I love,
0: I love the amnesty boxes. But in the we airport.
2: have all the. I know. I I always think they're funny. I'm like, oh, I'm glad that this weed can become a citizen. Yeah, the <laughs> so. really, CSA it's, it's
0: really is just collecting all the good stuff.
2: But like you're saying, it's like you you don't know if you have rights if you're trying to take care of chronic pain. And like for some people like me, that's just like, hey, chronic pain. Like I can deal without it. But it's a lot nicer when I have pain that I can do something about. It, but is the TSA going to come after me? Or, you know, for people with medical marijuana gun rights, it, 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 these ties are really not so great. Yeah, I mean,
0: do you maintain that, like, the medical marijuana thing is not a compromise that we should consider? Like, when talking about, like, different state legislatures legalizing medical marijuana... Is that an acceptable compromise or is it actually wolf in sheep's clothing? I I do not support medical marijuana because the moment your state
1: legalizes medical marijuana and you get a card, you're put into a database and you're basically made a second class citizen you have no access to guns. It's basically a felony to have a gun, possess a gun, once you're in the medical marijuana database. So whenever I'm pushing for uh, liberalization of marijuana in any sort of way, it's recreational access only. Yeah. I, I think recreational access is really the only way to go forward, just so you can pay in cash, not have any sort of record tied to you, yeah. and you have plausible deniability when you're very reasonably exercising your Second Amendment rights.
2: There's also a medicalization problem that when you medicalize something, it becomes way more overregulated in ways that are counterproductive mm-hmm. to its users. Um, just for example, in uh, with giving diet advice, there are states where like, if you basically tell someone to eat more vegetables and they pay you for like, oh, I should eat some cauliflower, like then um, then that ca- that's a crime. Like there was um, a, a, um, a mil- <laughs> I'm not
0: even <laughs> Cauliflower crimes.
2: There was a military spouse who had moved from California where the, the laws are very open there. You can pretty much do whatever. Uh-huh. To Florida, they did sting operations on her because she was giving people diet advice and training them. Well, what you know, I mean, I know you guys can figure it out, but there's one diet advice is available everywhere. For some reason when money is exchanged for a book, it's okay but if it's exchanged for that, that's not okay and it's the medicalization of like diet advice, that's not smart. And I kind of worry that it's the same thing here, that people who might not have even a diagnosis yet, like wouldn't be able to access marijuana. You know, it took me forever to get my diagnoses, but I know I had chronic pain. And even though marijuana doesn't really do anything for me, like there's a lot of people who that could help. So when you medicalize something, you actually you know, restrict access, um, take away ability for people who have uh, diagnoses, people who don't. I think that that that's another kind of regulatory barrier that a lot of people don't realize.
1: It most certainly is. I there's so many factors that go into this that's yeah. hard for me to like have a straight opinion because everyone's unique. Yeah. I mean, some people say, "Wouldn't it be better if we could give people marijuana instead of opioids?" And I'm like, not necessarily. Yeah, it it's, depends on the person. It, it really depends on the person. You know, one of my co-authors told me about the basically the founder of modern American surgery. His name is uh, William Halstead. and he used to have a cocaine addiction. He basically invented all of the procedures that we do in modern surgery. Wow. He was at Johns Hopkins, the idea of residency for doctors before they get their medical license. I know license. he must
0: be a big guy, because I know the name. <laughs>
1: so. like he invented that. He yeah. invented the idea of residency, yeah. very productive guy, maybe the most influential modern doctor ever. Uh-huh. He had a cocaine addiction. Mm-hmm. And then all of his friends stole him, put him on a boat, and then basically forced him to take morphine. What? And he switched his cocaine addiction for a morphine addiction. And then he went on for decades doing work and consuming morphine. Wow. And it's like, is it ideal that he's consuming morphine? And I I, I really want to say no. I, I feel like I always want to say if you can be chemically independent, that's yeah. best. But he's also the founder of Ameri- like modern American yeah. surgery. like. Who am I to tell him what to do?
2: It's hard to he's know com- what he wants to Incredibly been like productive.
1: It. Right? It's like yeah. incredibly productive and he's doing what he wants to do. And it's like, well, if you're able to do that on opioids, and it seems like millions of people in the United States who have chronic pain are, yeah. let them do it.
0: It <sighs> That just doesn't seem like <laughs> an acceptable outcome. Like an acceptable message. And like politicians can't go to the stump with that. And that's why we have an opioid crisis. (laughs) I mean, that's literally why we have an opioid crisis. Do you you think, like you're in Ohio, J.D. Vance running for Senate. uh, Mm -hmm. Do you think he gets this at all? Do you think he's going in the wrong direction? I think he's
1: completely going into the wrong direction. He's feeding into the idea that Purdue Pharma and the pharmaceutical companies are solely responsible and that the government hasn't done anything wrong, which is absolutely absurd. I think if he takes power, he's probably going to do what Portman did, who he's trying to replace, basically causing the policies— that caused the crisis in the first place and then exporting them to the rest of the country.
0: J.D. Vance is not being endorsed by Jacob
1: <laughs> I, That is uh, Well, I don't know. He might run against Tim Ryan.
0: <laughs> in which case, the lesser of two evils. <laughs> Y'all... Some good news, just to round things down. Um, would love to love to pivot over, just like good news, things personal, things going on in the world that got you excited, uh, because this is this is grim stuff. I, I will say, like the legalization of marijuana on a federal level, it's like you know coming down the pike. I'm very optimistic about that. The polling is clear. 70 plus percent of Americans are excited about that being a thing. Um, But still, this is a a tough subject. So good news going on for you besides uh, finally getting back home after a ton of layovers here in D.C. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no. uh, D.C. will always be a second home. I had a little bit of a rough night getting here, as we already discussed. (laughs) But there's a couple good things on my mind. I mean, 2020 was terrible in many ways, but there were some positive developments that I'd like to report on. First is one that you already mentioned, the drop in suicides during 2020. I this actually is very consistent with my research. It looks like population density is the best predictor of a state's suicide rates. And it looks making like making it worse or better. More population density, yeah, less suicide. Okay. New Jersey, most populated, least amount of suicides. Wyoming, Alaska, least I'm sorry. Why? Sorry, New Jersey's most populated, least suicides. Yeah. Wyoming and Alaska, least populated, most suicides. Yeah. So why is that? Because people are lonely. Yeah, I, like I, I think I, I think this is actually like a good outcome. It's like yeah. people do well when they're together. Yeah, people like to see each other, and I think during the pandemic, you had a lot of young people moving out of the cities. And repopulating oh. these rural communities. A lot of people I know from D.C. actually moved back home to their rural hometowns. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like the parents and older people around there are
0: probably better off to parents, have them. Parents and grandparents moved back in together. You mm-hmm. actually had multiple generations of families living under one roof in the past year to take care of each other, yeah. to support each other through job loss. And just just that idea that, like, it made me wonder why do we live apart? And I know it's like nobody wants to be like in a in a multi generational shanty, right? In a, in a really in a really populated city. But like I just wonder sometimes, and especially after COVID, why do we not live together for longer? I know it's the American dream to have your own space and to have a yeah. home, but like it feels wrong after this year because I feel like we've been there for each other like we've never been before.
1: I mean, I just moved back home. My father just retired. And I was considering moving to Cleveland, and I probably will. But like, I'm living at home. He just retired. We lift weights together, cooks That's me awesome. food. It's kind of like I'm actually like this is going to be the best time in my life to ever Aww. be with my dad because he just has so much time because he's not working yeah. now. It's, it's yeah. kind of beautiful. He can be himself. <laughs> yeah. And one more good thing to report on. We actually had a massive drop in youth vaping during 2020. Oh,
0: awesome. But I thought
1: it was an epidemic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The kids, the babies are vaping.
1: It's interesting how our language changes once we're like confronted (laughs) with a real epidemic. Yeah. A real epidemic that kills like 600,000 yeah. people plus
0: throughout the world. You can't crisis ta- well, an, an epidemic the on the end of everything.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this survey was actually done before the lockdowns and the school closures were happening. So it looks like it went from like 28% to 20%. Pretty massive decrease over the span of one year. So yeah. lots of statistics are going in the correct direction, and there's reason to be optimistic.
0: Well— your your stuff is very well thought out and made me very optimistic about the coming years. Mine is completely ridiculous. Raleigh, North Carolina, fa- finally captured the zebra cobra. <laughs> there's, been a, there's been a cobra on the loose in Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, I
2: wish I had seen. I love or, when animals are on the loose. They, They're not
0: indigenous? They, the zebra cobra is not indigenous to Raleigh. So the funny thing was that in North Raleigh, this is my hometown, so I used to live in North Raleigh, um, and this zebra cobra uh, literally just like a white and black striped cobra has been on the loose uh, for the summer, right? Or well, that's yeah. what we thought. Uh, it got out of somebody's home because it's <laughs> legal to have a cobra in your house, uh, which has made me less libertarian as a result because I'm now thinking, no, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe we don't need that kind of liberty. I don't know. Uh, but so this cobra got out and was uh, spotted. The guy didn't report that it was out in North Raleigh. It was only uh, found out once it was spotted, photographed, and then made it onto the news that there was a cobra in somebody's backyard. And then they find out, once they find out who was registered to have such snakes, that it got out last year. <laughs> that this, this guy, and this he wasn't going to face charges because... Uh, you know, you lose your cobra uh, and let it loose in the neighborhood, and unbeknownst to you, it's an accident. It's a mishandling of, of your animals. But then they found him, and it comes out that it's been missing since, like, December, November of last year, and has just been, I guess, like, sheltering for the winter, Aww. and now it's out. <laughs> That's so cute. It's not cute. (laughs) It's really good. It's not cute. It's my total nightmare. But they (laughs) they finally caught it. And uh, good for Raleigh because I I don't want my North Raleigh friends to uh, to get sprayed. It's a spitting cobra. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, it's a spitting cobra, which is part of why it took so long to capture it. (laughs) That
2: makes sense.
0: Good news. So North Carolina is no longer canceled. It's open for business.
2: Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, no, I love. I love when animals are in the loose. I just feel like it brings everyone together because everyone's like, "There's a cow in the street." It's the best memes. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I love it. I am like, I really think we should do it for public morale. Just release various animals on the streets from time to time. I've long said this. You can look through my Twitter. I've said it for years. Um, I'm a big fan of that. So my good news is largely animal related too. I've gotten to see so many moose and like marmots and pikas this year. I'm so happy. I my parent. I just brought my parents to Utah because, you know, like I had to show them Utah. Not southern, but northern Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I showed them lots of moose. My dad got to see marmots and pikas, uh, prairie dogs. My mom, I was yelling at her because she's like... We know the the prairie talks and I'm like mom that's not gonna-. and it started where I'm like I was wrong it's working so just keep doing it and they came right over you could really see them they have plagues so you really shouldn't touch them or never not never touch all of them. yeah but but they're so cute Um, I did get to boop a, um, a chipmunk too but like oh my gosh so many animals you got and- that
1: close to a I was gonna say that's quite impressive
2: yeah yeah just its nose and a lot
0: that's nuts. I
2: was so happy. And um, and my dad and I hiked <laughs> together, but he wasn't up to everything. He, he was adjusting to the altitude. So um, we did like 2,700 feet on our biggest day together. And I was like, hey, you want to go for four? He's like, no, we're not going for four. But
0: I'm, I'm still eager to get back out to the Tetons after after your recommendation for that hidden lake somewhere in the Tetons. I'm trying to remember Is what it it's called. Secret
2: Lake? Is that it?
0: Secret Lake. That sounds perfect.
2: Yeah, yeah. it's one of those. Yeah. It's beautiful. I,
0: I, we tried to make it all the way out there. I mean, it was like 15 miles. Yeah. Uh, to get there and we we tapped out around 12 because if we didn't turn around then we wouldn't have made the ferry back yeah and we would have been trapped on this (laughs) on this mountain with bears
2: yeah yeah there's Uh, a a lot of bears there i saw a bear on that hike um i'm hopefully doing Teton's a third time next year to actually summit the Middle and South Tiedens. I got to the saddle this year and it wasn't bad, but um, I mean, besides like sliding down ice and using an ax to like self-arrest and stuff. Aside from that, it wasn't too bad, but it was just, we were tired. We had car- We'd gone five miles, 2,500 feet with like 40 pounds on our backs. And then we got to 4,700 feet total. And then we were tired and the, there were ice Cliffs and we're like we're not gonna climb ice cliffs right now. Like this we came for like walking, not like climbing ice cliffs. So next year.
0: Well, I do not want to have to find new co-hosts for the show. You might uh, it's so, fine. Yeah, when you are eventually killed by a moose.
2: There. Uh, It'll be there. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Moose are more dangerous. I know, I know, but people think they're friendly and they're not. But
2: they're so, so cute. <laughs> oh.
0: Jacob Rich, Shoshana Weissman, always fun. Uh, that is it for this edition of right now. Thank you to all our new subscribers for joining the fam. Uh, you can follow us on social media at rightly aj pretty much twitter facebook instagram we are there we have a new episode for you every thursday along with a new weekly video from gothics about canceling cancel culture really great youtube creator and we are so happy to have her in the right now family our newsletter unfettered is also up and running for you as well there's a link to that in the info for this episode down below on your podcast or here on youtube so till next time Always ask why, stay out of line, be a bug in the system. We'll see you soon.